Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. So we've been working through this series called God Is So I, and our hope is that as a church, we would see that God is great and that God is glorious and God is gracious. Today we're going to see that God is good and that he is our source of security and significance and satisfaction. So we want our minds to be renewed and our hearts to be transformed by the good news of who God is and what he's done for us. So as an orientation to the fact that God is good, I want to read this small quote from a French pastor a couple centuries ago. He said, your idea, so your idea, my idea of God's nature is not clear unless you acknowledge him to be the origin and the fountain of all goodness. So he's saying our idea of God is inaccurate unless we see that he is in his nature good and that all good things come from him. So I don't know about you, I've noticed at least two interrelated difficulties in my life in seeing this. One is I can struggle to believe that God is good because my heart is attaching my highest good to something else other than God. And I can also struggle to discern the difference between something feeling good and then something being good for me. And if I had the choice, the things that don't feel good but are good for me, I would, in the moment, have rather not go through those things. I don't know if you're like that. Here's an example. When I was in college... I worked at a summer camp, and in the afternoons, I'd run the soccer track with high schoolers, and so I went out one day and played with them, and one of them slide-tackled all the way through my planted ankle, like three, four weeks before preseason, and partially torn ligaments, third-degree high ankle sprain. Within a couple of days, I had swelling from the tips of my toes to my knee. And so I obviously went home from camp, from that job, and had to do some physical therapy. My first day of physical therapy was with a man named Bob, who was a trainer with the Dallas Cowboys in the 80s and the 90s. So I came in with two crutches, and immediately he was like, give me that one crutch. I was like, this is... I didn't love that. Uh, And then he proceeded by the end of our first session to tell me that within a week I was going to be on no crutches, I was like, I, you know, I didn't, this did not go how I thought it was going to go, Bob. Um, I, didn't, I didn't trust him, because I, what I thought was good for me was a slow, gradual recovery. And he knew that what was good for me would have resulted in long-term weakness in my ankle, and that I needed to start moving quicker to get the swelling out and start getting it recovering faster. What he also knew was good for me was the short-term pain, and also changing my mind to trust him, to trust his process, to know that He knew better than I did what was best for me. This is often how our relationship with God works. He is good all the time, and he's actively involved in our lives. And we expect that that means our lives are going to be blessed, going slowly from one good thing to the next good thing, and then we're surprised when there's difficulty that comes in. So this is really important to remember, is that my, your subjective perspective on the difficulties in our life doesn't change the fact that God is objectively good all the time. All right, so I'll say it again. My, your subjective perspective 
the way that we feel about the difficulties in our life doesn't change the objective fact that God is good. What it does is reveal what we think about God's nature. So maybe it's just me that God needs to teach his goodness through difficulty, but I doubt it. Uh, I think it's often through these circumstances that God reveals in us what we think about him. Like, do we really think that he's good? And it's often those difficult seasons of the miscarriage or the job loss or disappointed hopes and dreams that he uses to reveal our unbelief that he's good, take away our crutches, and move us to believe that he is our deepest good. Because we can be prone to ask Amazon to ship joy to our house in two days, or pursue sexual satisfaction in somebody other than our spouse, or we can be so bored with our life we're asking Netflix and Amazon and Apple TV to like, make our life not boring. We can look to politicians to bring back a good life or to produce a good life. But I'm sure you discovered that all of these things, if you haven't, you will soon, that all of these things leave us in the end feeling more hollowed out than when we trusted in them to begin with. But the overwhelmingly good news for us today is that God is good. Like, he really is, and it's not just a part of who he is. Actually, is who he is. He is good. All the way down from every angle and every season of our life, God is good all the time. And the good things he gives us aren't meant to sustain us as our highest good, but they're meant to be received by us as a gift, to give thanks back to him. So what I want us to see today is that God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. We're going to be in Psalm 107 today. And if you have a physical Bible, and probably, or on your phone, it'll say Book 5, right before Psalm 107. So this part of the Psalms is future-oriented. It's finding its fulfillment in Christ, who gathers in Israel and non-Israel to himself as a people. It's looking forward in hope for that. And it's important to keep in mind, because this is talking to, thinking about the people that God has scattered into exile and has promised to gather them back to himself as one people. So Psalm 107.1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The reason that we give thanks to God, the grounds for giving thanks to God, is because of who he is. He is good. So this is who God is in his being, in his essence. It's like an equation. Six equals half a dozen. God equals good. A church theologian says it like this. God's goodness isn't any common goodness. He's good by nature, in essence, and proven to be good in all acts of his eternity. Compared with God, there is no one good. Not one. But God is essentially, perpetually, superlatively, infinitely good. And we are the perpetual partakers of his goodness. And therefore ought above all his creatures to magnify his name. So we aren't good, but God is infinitely good. And we continually think that looking at finite things to satisfy us, to give us comfort, satisfaction, will satisfy us the way that the only infinite God can, who is good. C.S. Lewis is right. We're far too easily pleased. And the invitation for us through Jesus is to know deeper and greater satisfaction and joy than anything that we're hoping and give us, like people or power or sex or money and stuff. Right, next verse. 
Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let them say that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Whom he has redeemed from trouble, gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So remember the story of Israel. God is working to gather back a people that he had scattered out of the land he promised Abraham because they said they were going to be his people and then worshipped other gods. They turned to other goods besides him. And he has scattered them out of the land. And then in his generous goodness, he is bringing them back to himself. And this is actually the hope that we have in Christ. We are a purchased people or a redeemed people, forgiven and adopted into his global family. So I didn't read all of the psalm, but we're going to jump into a couple examples of these people that psalmist is talking about, the people that are redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. And then we're also going to see how a part of the life of David exemplifies someone who's looking for good outside of God. All right, so Psalm 107, 4 to 9. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. What we see are people experiencing deprivation, in deep need of home, food. God is using this season they're in to drive them towards him. Look at the next verse. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Why? Because he satisfies the longing soul. The hungry soul he fills with good things. Why is it that we struggle to see that God is good when our lives are the hardest? So Charles Spurgeon says that like, he says this is what God is doing that if hunger brings us to our knees, it's more useful to us than feasting. If thirst drives us to the fountain, it's better than all the deepest drafts of worldly joy. If fainting leads to crying, it's better than the strength of the mighty. It's hardest to see that God is good when our hearts are attached to other things. And especially when God uses the seasons and situations in our life to start to threaten those things in our life maybe even to remove them. So if this is where you are today, if you're hungry and thirsty, weary and weak, I would invite you to do what the people in the psalm did. They cried out to the Lord, and you'll see that God is good, that he satisfies the needs that you have in your life. Everything else that we look for keeps giving us diminishing returns of happiness. God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere. He provides for his people. All right, so the first group of people were people that were like wandering in the desert without a home and needing food. This group of people that we're going to look at are in their situation because of their own, their own choices. Some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God. So we bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the shadow of death, and burst their bonds apart. So this group is in prison, near death, darkness, because they hated, they rejected, they heard God's words and commands, and then they rebelled against them, thinking that they are not good. And the goodness of God is seen that while these rebels are receiving the just consequences in their life, God in his undeserved grace towards them 
He moves towards them when they cry out to them. When they could find no one else to help them, nothing else to attach their hearts to, they turn to God. Look at verse 12. It's not laid out there. I'll just read it. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. So we can be just like this. When we feel trapped because of our rebellion against God's laws, we can try to get our guilt and our shame off in a bunch of different ways. And it's often not until we're stuck and we can't move anymore that then when we've tried everything else, we turn to God and we're willing to walk in the light with others. And look at this. I think this is fascinating. God is so good that he keeps us in that place. It says he bowed their hearts down. He put them in a position where they had to fall down with nothing else to help them. God is the one who does that. He keeps us frustrated until we turn to him. He wants us to see that we have nothing outside of him. And it's his grace to people who are hard-hearted and rebellious like us. Because he alone can satisfy us and free us from the prisons that we put ourselves in. He's so good we don't have to look elsewhere, but he's also so good he won't let us simply look elsewhere. He wants what's best for us, and God is what's best for us. So if this is where you are today, if you're feeling like you're receiving the consequences of your own sinful choices against God and you're stuck, I would invite you to do what these people did in this psalm. Stop looking for something else or someone else to fix it. Turn to God. He will deliver you, and he will free you. And embrace the season of the difficulty that you're in as God's goodness extended towards you. That's your path to freedom and life in him. So that's God's goodness and steadfast love to rebels. And then this next unit is fools. So really fun categories to work through. So he says, some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. The Lord loves to gather fools into his people as well. They're called fools by their sinful choices. And the consequences that we see in their life are directly related to their foolishness, choosing to live by their own wisdom instead of the wisdom of God. And what are the consequences? They hate their life. (laughs) They loathe any kind of food. Proverbs tells us when a man's ways bring, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Rages against the Lord. So when they get into this position where their foolishness has put them in a position where they even hate their life, then these fools cry out to the Lord in trouble and he delivers them from their distress. He meets them there and he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. He heals them. He doesn't just deliver them, but he also heals them. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a sidestep and look at the life of David. Look at where David actually acts like a rebel and a fool. This is the story where David becomes an adulterer and a murderer. We're going to start with 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. All right, so if you haven't read the Old Testament, really good at like subtlety. So this is just the beginning of a story where David becomes a murderer and an adulterer, and it says in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. Okay? That's like a normal sentence. 
And then David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. So apparently David's not going out to battle. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But just in case you didn't get it, David remained at Jerusalem. So this is the intro, getting it very clear in our minds that whatever the pattern that kings had, David is choosing to do something different. We're not exactly given the reasons why David didn't go out. Maybe he's bored with his job. Like God has given him peace, given him an eternal covenant. One of his sons would raise up the temple, have an eternal kingdom, eternal throne. Like he's all set. Maybe he's sitting here and he's like, why would I need to risk the comforts of my life when I can't have the general go out and sleep on the ground with the men and go, I've already done this enough. And then if it goes badly, I can just come out and fix it. Maybe he's just sitting there in the midst of his entitlement. Like he has already accomplished so much. This palace is really nice. Why would I need to go out? I'm speculating on all of that. Maybe I'm reading into it, trying to put myself in David's position, why he would do that. The thing that's clear is, whatever kings are doing, David's not doing. So this is the role that God has called him to, and he's choosing not to do it. So here's what happens. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David finds out who she is. She is the wife of one of his 40 mighty men. Apparently, that didn't bother him. He still brings her to himself and commits adultery with her. And some time goes by, and then Bathsheba sends word to him that David got her pregnant. So instead of crying out to the Lord for help and forgiveness for his rebellion, David doubles down, and then he acts like a fool, tries to cover it up. So he brings Uriah home. This is Bathsheba's husband. He brings him home from battle, presumably just to get a, a war report or something, and tries to get Uriah to stay the night with his wife. Because then he could pass it off like that's Uriah's baby. What David doesn't anticipate is Uriah's integrity, because Uriah knows that everybody else is out sleeping on the ground, away from their home and not with their wives. So Uriah does not go home to his wife. He stays on the ground with the servants in David's temple, or David's palace, uh, which is a not-so-thinly-veiled critique of David, who's sleeping in his own palace, not with his men, and also sleeping with another soldier's wife while his men are out fighting for him. So David still doesn't cry out for help. Instead, he sends a sealed letter in Uriah's hand to the general. The sealed letter says, take Uriah, put him in a place of hardest fighting, remove people back, and then he dies, which is exactly what happens. So this is, if this is the first time that you've heard this story, this is a wild one, I'm sure. Um, and then David marries Bathsheba, thinks that it's covered up. It's fine, nobody knows. And then Nathan the prophet comes, and he exposes David's sin to him. He gets to the roots of his sin and exposes all of it. And when David hears the judgment of God against him, when he's been exposed for his rebellion and his foolishness, this is what he does. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. So David is a murderer and an adulterer, and the Lord God forgives him of his sin, even while these consequences remain. And God's goodness is seen in both, the consequences and the atonement of David's guilt. David's response to his sin, finally, shows that he had been looking for good in another place besides God. And then now he's turning back to God. He's repenting. And he's content to live under the consequences of his sin because he knows he's forgiven and that God's steadfast love is better than life. So he puts sackcloth and ashes on to pray that the Lord would spare the baby. And when he doesn't, he accepts the baby's death as the consequences for his own sinfulness. So David was foolish and rebellious, and those closest to him also received devastating consequences for him abusing his authority, pursuing a good in his life other than what God had given him and then God himself. And when he and when we do this, it's not just us who have those consequences. The people around us also receive the shrapnel of what happens in our life. But even for a wicked king like David, and then pretend kings and queens like you and me, the good news from the Psalms is true. That for those who cry out to the Lord for forgiveness, for relief, for deliverance, that God hears us and God answers. Psalm 107.9, it says, God satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Our heart longs for God, and nothing we attach them to can satisfy us the way that God has designed us to find our satisfaction in him. So if this is you, if you're experiencing the consequences, or this is a made-up word, but the stuckness, you're feeling stuck because of what you've done, don't begrudge God. Instead, cry out to him. Look to him as your only good this morning. Because the end result for us when we move through these difficulties in our life is that God burns away our foolishness. He scrapes out our selfishness. He cauterizes our childishness. He moves us towards maturity in him to know that he alone is our only good. Romans 8, Paul tells us that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say our life is perfect. It says all things work together for good. What we need is we need Christ to fix our eyes off ourselves and not him. We need the spirit to free us from worship of other things, to worship God in spirit and in truth. We need the Father to forgive us and to give us his love. The most important way that we see God's goodness revealed to us is the steadfast love of Christ. This is the most important way. This is the pinnacle of God's goodness revealed to us. Christ came to die for sinners like you and like me. So if you want to know that God is good, we look and look and look and keep looking at Christ, at the steadfast love of Christ for us. He received in his body the punishment for our sin. He was publicly crucified as a rebel king and mocked as a fool in our place, for us. And the Father raised him from the dead, vindicated him, set him on David's eternal throne, promised to David, 
And from that place, he gives us life and freedom. So when we believe God is good, we don't have to look elsewhere. So as we close, I have two simple questions for us and an invitation. So two simple questions and an invitation. One, which is actually two, so I'm getting two for the price of one. So uh, what in your heart is telling you that God is good? And then a flip side of that, what in your life points to your heart not believing that God is good? It's like, what's going on in your heart related to seeing and believing the goodness of God? So identify that. Bring that to him in prayer and into your gospel communities this week. So that's the first question. The second one is, what good thing or good things have you been attaching your heart to that is giving you diminishing returns of happiness? So maybe it's your children or your spouse or your work success, approval, more money, more sex, more power, a different home, a different car. The Catechism teaches us that idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the Creator for our hope and our happiness, our significance and our security. What is it that you trust to make you happy? What is it that you go to when you're sad? And then if God took those things away, would you be angry and full of despair at Him? What good things have you been attaching your heart to that are giving you diminishing returns of happiness? So there's good, two good questions for us to think about and pray about this week. And here's an invitation. After the service, this is like, this was an announcement and now it's an invitation now. Uh, after the service, we're doing gospel fluency training, which means that we're growing and learning who Christ is, what he's done for us, and how believing that transforms all of who we are. The psalm points to this pattern, that we acknowledge our sin and our need to God We cry out to him in prayer, and he hears us. And we look to him to deliver us. We look to the work of Christ on our behalf. And then from that, we live gratefully transformed lives, giving thanks and praise back to God. Because God is so good, we don't have to look elsewhere. Gospel fluency training after the service. Child care and lunch provided. God is good. So let's, let's believe that and stop looking other places for our happiness and our hope, significance, and security. If we believe God is good, we could be content. We could be content with a lot. We could be content with a little. We can be content when our life is difficult. And we can be content when our life is great. If we believe God is good, we can also be generous. We can receive the good things he's given to us, be generous to others with them, and return back to God thankfulness and gratitude for what he has given. So let's go for that this week. Let's be a people that believe that God is good so we don't have to look elsewhere.